Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. Not to delay getting to the meat of what I want to say this evening. We're taking it from... 1 Corinthians 13, verses 6 and 7, just those two, those two verses only. We have already dealt with all of the verses prior to that in preceding weeks. Dealing with love, and the title, of course, is The Qualities of Love, and we'll see some more qualities of love in the passage this evening. Uh, love, reach, I'm adding love here because in order to to introduce the theme, verse 6, Love rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Let us pray. Our Father, as we look at your word again this evening, We pray that we will be blessed by the understanding of the meaning of love as it relates to each of us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Throughout the four other sermons that I have preached on this subject, we have been noticing some things about love. And last week, we talked about some qualities that love has. And this evening, I want to conclude with these two verses of the qualities of love. And the first one that he states in verse 6, if you want to hold your Bibles open, and if you don't mind writing in your Bible, you may want to make a few notes as we go along. The King James says, love rejoices not in iniquity. To put it into modern terms, we can say it this way, love does not enjoy sin. Love does not enjoy sin. Isaiah, back in the fifth chapter of Isaiah, stated these words, He said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light darkness. Woe to those who call evil good. It doesn't take very long in a company of the average group of people in our society to discover that a large number of people, and maybe the majority of people in our country, really delight in sin. Really delight in it. And sometimes we as Christian people find ourselves falling into that same pattern, and at least uh, somewhat enjoying the, the blight of sin. Enjoying the little innuendos and the outright blatant statements and fun that is made 
of subjects that dishonor God and dishonor the church. Sin has been exploited to the point of making it glamorous. If any of you have watched television nearly within any hour, excluding the Super Bowl, I'll exclude that, uh, excluding the Super Bowl, it doesn't take us long to discover that the attractant in advertisements and the programs that are on television depict sin in a glamorous manner. Sex is exploited. Violence is made to be glamorous. The criminal is made to be the hero. Drugs are considered to be something necessary. Alcohol is the thing that is done by people of distinction. And on and on it goes. And that person who is good or who is moral on the television programs and in the movies is looked upon with uh, downcast eyes. Or they look down their nose at anybody who's good. A good person is sneered at. Evil is sought after, and anything goes to make it glamorous. I don't think you can challenge those statements. Because sin appears to be something beautiful. And a Christian is not immune from enjoying, and perhaps even in participating, or certainly observing the sin of his world. What is sin, anyway? Sin is that which is an affront to God. Sin is that which embarrasses God. Sin is that which God hates. Sin is something that he will require to be put out of our lives before we can be ushered into his presence. Whatever offends God, therefore, should offend us. But does it? Now, we sometimes excuse ourselves with saying, well, after all, I'm only human, and that's true, and we will fall into sin, and we will do things that are sinful. But there is one distinction. That is, although we do those things, when it's over with, we are distraught asking ourselves, why is it that I actually ever thought of doing that, let alone doing it? It, it disturbs us. It should, if it does not. A Christian ought to be disturbed by the sin that he commits. Now you see that I left open the opportunity, or the poss I should say the possibility, that we will sin because we all will sin. But a Christian ought to find himself in the position of, of 
being ashamed of that which we do that is an affront to God. And love will not glory in or gloat in or revel in or delight in those things that are an affront to God. To do so places us in a position of making it possible to inquire if we're Christian. Maybe we will be Christian and still do it. I may lie, but listen, that lie ought to tear my heart out. I may steal, but stealing ought to disturb me drastically. I may cheat, I may commit all kinds of sin, but a Christian will find that it's a disturbing thing to have done it. And we will attempt some way or other to, to bring ourselves around to being able to fall on our face before God and asking God's forgiveness. Love does not enjoy sin. Love may commit sin. Love should not enjoy it. One of the chief violators of love as a sin is nothing other than gossip. Do you know what gossip really is? Gossip is gloating over the sin somebody else has committed. Let me repeat it. Gossip is gloating over somebody else's sin. Gossip is revealing somebody else's weakness and exploiting it before the world. Love does not do that. I heard the story one time of a man, and maybe I've told you this. It's difficult to keep in, in a computer in my mind the, the, the stories that I've used in past sermons. So if I, if I repeat, just remember I'm getting old and my memory's not what it used to be, and, and I'm like a few of the rest of you. I can't quite remember. This story I heard, it makes a point. A young person had spoken some gossip about another member of the church. Discovering that what had been spoken was really a falsehood. The person was not guilty of what he was charged. So the individual went to his pastor and told him the story, what he had done, and how sorry he was for what he had said, and asked the pastor what to do about it. The pastor said, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to get some feathers, and I want you to go around, and I want you to lay a feather on the doorstep of every person to whom you told that. Then come back and see me. Around he went through the town laying feathers on doorsteps. He came back to the pastor and said, I have done what you said. He said, all right, now to rectify the situation that you have committed, I want you to go back and pick up all the feathers that you laid. He said, but pastor, I can't do that. The wind has blown them away. He said, yes, I know. Neither 
can you gather back sin of gossip? Love does not gloat in the sins of himself or the sins of others. All right, let's go on. Verse 6 again. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but love rejoices in the truth. Well, what is truth? I went to the dictionary to see what Webster said truth is, because I couldn't in my own mind put the definition to it. And I find that Webster says this, truth is a fundamental or spiritual reality. Truth is a spiritual reality. And sometimes we confuse fiction and reality to the point that we don't really know which is which. I can remember a couple of episodes that are always amusing to me. One of them dealt with Roy Rogers and his horse Trigger. The story is that Trigger was ill, and Roy Rogers on the program was trying to figure out a way to, to cure his good horse. And one of the people who listened to the radio program, a good old farmer, wrote him in a good prescription for curing horses. But the one I really liked was in church during a time of asking for people who had anybody to pray for when one lady got up and asked that the church pray for one of the people on the soap opera that was going to have an operation. The mixing of fiction and reality gets so confusing that we don't know. Love rejoices in reality and does not mix up its belief in things that are fictitious. I say that to, to make this point, that many people do not know what they believe. Now I want you to know that I am a Baptist for two reasons. Number one, I was born in a Baptist family. And my two grandfathers and my father and my uncle were Baptist deacons. I couldn't have been anything else. But over the years, I have discovered really why I am a Baptist. Because I believe that we, as Baptist people, and particularly American Baptists, that we are, have as close a grasp upon the truth of God's word as it is possible to grasp. Somebody asked a Baptist preacher one time what he would be if he were a Baptist, and he said, I would be ashamed. And I think we ought to feel just about that way. Whatever the truth of God's word is, we ought to know it and hold on to it. We ought to know it and hold on to it. And I will give anybody else who is not a Baptist the privilege and the right of believing what, what they believe the scripture teaches. But the point is as made to Timothy by Paul in 2 Timothy 
2.15, when he said to that young preacher, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed. There are too many Christian people who are ashamed of the gospel to the, to the point that they don't know what it says. And it cannot be imparted to anybody because they themselves don't know. I believe we need to get closer and closer and closer to God's word so that we know without a shadow of doubt what truth really is. What the Bible really says. And when we have discovered what we believe God's word is, we ought to stick to it. And I firmly believe that we ought to find the church that teaches it and preaches it as close to what we believe as we possibly can. And if a person believes that uh, the, the scripture teaches such as the Methodists do, he ought to be in the Methodist church. Or he ought to be in the Catholic church. Or he ought to be in the Free Will Baptist church. Or he ought to be in the Presbyterian, excuse me, or whatever. The point is, we need to determine in our life what truth is and not depend upon tradition to carry us along. And there are many people who know nothing more than tradition. But we ought to not follow people who have not studied God's word and uh, rightly divided the word of truth. The word rightly divided, by the way, in 2 Timothy 2.15, really can be translated, uh, handling accurately. Read it that way. Study to show thyself approved unto God, handling accurately the word of God. How accurately do we handle his word? Well, that's why we have Sunday school, and that's why we have Wednesday night Bible study, and that's why we have many things that go on in our church, in order that we might come to the truth of what the, what the word is, and we're not going to rely upon what somebody else says we're going to know. There are lots of shallow preachers and shallow teachers across our land that are improperly teaching the word because they really haven't studied it. Love does not delight in anything except truth. Well, let's go on. Verse 7. Love bears all things. The word bear in this case means to cover up. Love covers up. Love protects. Love supports. That's the point of this. Now, love does not protect sin. But love does protect the sinner. Proverbs 10 and 12 says, Hate uh, stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. I believe that. And you have seen it and experienced it. Hate stirs up strife. Did you hear those words? What does love do? Love covers all sins. Love will protect as far as it is possible to protect. Love will warn and exhort and rebuke and discipline, but love will not exploit and broadcast the failures and the wrongs that other people commit. Love will attempt to woo and bring into the fold those people who are, have gone astray. Love will attempt every way possible to cover up the sins of that individual. 
I'll never forget my grandmother covering up a sin of mine one time to my grandfather. Never will forget it in all my life. I was a little fellow and had gone home for the summer to be with my grandparents and I was all excited and bubbling and talking and it came within the meal time and I sat down and grabbed the dish of potatoes and dipped some out on my plate and my grandfather hadn't seen me do it. He always prayed. He never failed to pray. My grandmother saw what I did, and she just reached the meat and handed it to me, and he looked at her, and she just smiled at him, and she covered up my sin. I'm sure she got a blessing afterwards, <laughs> but I got by with it. Love covers up the sins of other people to protect the individual. Does not exploit them. You know why I know that's true? Because on the cross of Calvary, the love of God covered my sin. My sin was hidden in the power of the cross. And your sin was hidden in the power of the cross. If Jesus Christ covered our sin with his own body, should we not cover each other's sin with our lives as well? Love will take whatever is dished out. You might hate me, despise me, abuse me, but if I am love, I will not give it in return. I'll give nothing but love. I will cover up that which is thrown at me. All right, fourthly, love believes all things. Love is not suspicious. We have a suspicious nature. If there is the slightest possibility that somebody is wrong, we have a tendency to believe the worst and make them prove the best. Why can't we reverse it? We believe the best until we are proven that they have done the worst. That's what love does. Love will not believe wrong against another. Just because somebody says it's so. Love believes that a person is innocent, innocent until proven guilty. How about you and me? Love trusts. Love trusts. A person who will trust you loves you. If you won't trust somebody, you don't love them. Did you hear it? If you won't trust them, you don't love them. Love will give that person every opportunity to prove themselves to you, without a doubt. No shadow of disbelief. Fifthly, love hopes all things. I believe this says love will not accept failure as final. Love will not accept failure. Many times we have people who come into our churches, this one is no exception, I'm sure, who say they believe in Jesus Christ and we accept them on that statement. 
But there's always somebody who's saying, uh-huh, we'll just wait and see. Love doesn't do that. Love takes them at the word and hopes for the best. Hopes for the best. We're not going to accept failure. That person who comes in and goes back out again, we're not going to let them go. We're going to be out there trying to woo them back. We're not going to accept them as failure. I'll guarantee you, as pastor of this church, I will not accept failure as a part of any of you. Never. And I want you to say the same thing back to me. As the pastor of this church, you will never accept failure in me. Not that it won't happen either way, but we won't accept it. We're going to do everything we can to correct it and to bring ourselves back to a position of, uh, of success. It is not enough for us to see somebody come in the church and leave again, never to be seen, and we say, oh, just as I thought. But we will be out there after them, loving them, counseling them, encouraging them, because we don't accept their failure. We won't accept it. Because for them to fail means that we have failed. And we're not going to fail, are we? Love will not give up. We've talked about the 180 names on our prayer list that I'm carrying in my Bible. I'll tell you what love will do. Love will not give up. Not give up until all 180 of those are saved. Love won't give up until that happens. Some of us will be dead and gone before it ever happens. Some of those people will never be saved, but it's not because we gave up. We're not going to give up. We're going to continue to pray, continue to work, continue to encourage until we have seen our loved ones on that list saved. We're not going to give up. If you think you have failed, brethren, you haven't failed in the eyes of God. Well, he hasn't given up on you. If you think you have failed in the eyes of this church, you have another thought. Well, this church is not going to give up until we have wooed and won every one of our loved ones and friends into the kingdom of God. All right, lastly, love endures all things. That's a military term. It means love holds its position without regard to the cost. When a general gives his army the charge, hold that position at all costs, he means hold it to the death of the last man. Never give up. When Jesus Christ gave us the commission, to go into the world and win the lost for Jesus Christ, 
He means for us to hold this position here in Turtle Creek at all costs for his cause. And we're going to stand firm. If it takes the life of every one of us, we will stand to the death in order that the name of Jesus Christ would be proclaimed. Now I'm going to talk about that in the sermon in a few weeks, about the possibilities of our having to stand to the death because I think the day is going to come, and some of our young people may face it, even in this country, when we're going to have to stand to the death for what we believe. We can now talk about it easily, because we don't have to do it today, but the day I think will come when we will. This church has been put here by our supreme commander to hold the fort at all costs. He's asking us to commit ourselves to the purpose of his kingdom in this community, whatever it might personally cost us. Are we willing to take that challenge? Whatever the enemy does, love is going to stand. Because verse 8 says, love never fails. Did you hear that? Love never fails. Love never fails. Whether there be preaching, they'll fail. Whether there are tongues, they'll cease. Whether there's knowledge, it'll vanish away. Love will never fail. He concludes this chapter in verse 13, Now abides or now lives faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You can have all the faith in the world, you can have all the hope in the world, but if you have it without love, we go back to the very beginning. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not love, I am nothing. <coughs> love is all or it's nothing. We've got to love in order to be the, the church of Jesus Christ in this community. We're only going to be as successful in winning the loss to Christ as we are lovable and loving. That's all. If we don't love, we don't win. That's, that's the bottom line. Don't love, don't win. But love with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And there is nothing that can stand in the way of this church as we proclaim the gospel of Christ in this community. I believe firmly, I've said this before and I want to repeat it, that we stand on the very edge of seeing a tremendous outbreak of revival in our church and in our community when we see the numbers of people who are demonstrating concern for Christ and see the tears roll down their face right in this building, we're ready to see them yield. I think I can name 20, but we're going to see make some kind of decision quickly. But whether they make it or not, it's going to depend upon what comes out of here, your heart and mind. 
We're going to love them into the kingdom. Shall we pray? Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at James sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.